This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We have a short supply. We have a finite supply of registered nurses that exist in this country. They can't be created overnight. It takes about two years, assuming they've already got all their prerequisites. And then they still have to be trained and go through an internship to be able to be competent on the floor. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today's conversation is probably overdue as most health systems have been struggling with workforce issues for months. We're not really forecasting that those struggles are going to ease very much here in the coming months and years. Contract labor is just a piece of that total workforce equation, but by its nature, you know, all the bigger trends impacting the clinical labor force really reverberate through contract labor and vice versa. To help us understand what's happening there, to share their insights about what may happen next, we have two experts from VIA Workforce, Melanie Bell and David Herman. Thanks so much. I'm excited. I know I'm going to learn a lot and I know our listeners will too. Melanie, you guys have terrific data about supply, demand, contract labor rates. Give us a quick landscape. What's the past six months or so looked like? How are the patterns moved? I've seen the recent patterns have changed a little bit. What's the recent trend and how do you think that may continue? Thanks, Trevor, and thanks for having us. And I'm an RN, so I'll throw some medical terminology in here sometimes with this, but it's been a very labile market. We've seen a lot of really up and down over the last six months. We saw the winter surge come to a close and really saw a decline and bottom out in the job market as far as open job requests that were needing to be filled across healthcare. But really quick behind that April bottom out, we saw climbing of needs as well as rates that occurred with the emergence of the Delta surge. Was that Delta variant spread across the country, we saw climbing accelerating starting in August, and then it just skyrocketed from August through about mid-September. Since then, we have seen leveling of the market from a demand perspective, and then even a slight decline that has occurred between that mid-September timeline and current. What we've not seen yet is the softening of the market that has allowed the rates to return down to pre-pandemic rates within the contract market, especially for our travel RNs. What we did see is some softening in those rates that occurred in that valley we experienced in April. We're not seeing that yet this time around. And that's really being driven by the fact that so many healthcare systems are still experiencing really high vacancy rates. And as a result, are using contract labor to backfill all of those needs. There are still patients that need to be cared for on a day-to-day basis. So they need those nurses in order to be able to provide that care, as well as all of the supportive staff. And as a result, they're extending every staff that they already have on site, and they're really keeping the supply locked up. Because the supply isn't opening up, we're not seeing the rates start to soften within the market as a result. Just in the last 30 days, we've seen 10% drop in total open job requests, with the exception of dialysis and medical lab techs. Those seem to be the exception across the board. Dialysis is an area that's high level of specialty for nurses, so it is difficult to find a dialysis nurse in the best of times. And when they're in high demand, like now, it becomes especially difficult. And then medical lab techs are being utilized in all of these COVID labs now across the country. And it's really created a challenge for healthcare systems to get the techs that they need in order to continue their lab operations that occur daily. That's where we're at now. 
to say something is unprecedented, we hear that used over and over again. Looking at the data, comparing the end of October of 21 to the end of October of 2019, pre-pandemic, the open travel nursing jobs are up 394% compared to two years ago. ICU nurses are up 503% compared to two years ago. ER is up 574%. And, you know, one of the things that was a bit of a surprise for me too, is in July of 21, the demand for behavioral RNs doubled in the span of about three days in one particular week. So it's also shifting the type of needs out there. In the beginning, everybody was thinking it was really focused on a handful of job types, med surge, tele, ICU, ED, respiratory therapy, CRNA, etc. It's really now started diversifying. And there was even a blip where people thought, okay, well, we're getting past the pandemic where we saw a huge increase in the OR job types as well. The other thing that was rather kind of amusing for me, which wasn't a surprise, was labor and delivery and NICU started climbing in May of this year, lagged nine months after many of the cold weather COVID surges. So we know what everybody was doing during those last surges. That's good. Most people don't know September is the most common month for babies to be born, and that goes along with the concept of cold weather, but we've definitely taken that to a new level with the pandemic. There you go. Melanie, I'm going to come back to you because that's an awesome landscape and a great quick overview of what's happening. How are hospitals and health systems reacting to this new environment? We're seeing lots of different approaches occur across the country, and we're also recommending a lot of different actions to members across the country. Unfortunately, we've seen just an immense amount of burnout across the entire clinical space, RNs especially. There was a survey earlier this year that said 22% of the RNs that they surveyed were planning on leaving the profession within the next six months. It's frightening. We're already in a situation where we have a short supply. We have a finite supply of registered nurses that exist in this country. They can't be created overnight. It takes about two years, assuming they've already got all their prerequisites. And then they still have to be trained and go through an internship to be able to be competent on the floor. We see hospitals that are dealing with immensely high vacancy rates for their full-time core staff. And they're really going to market to try to recruit staff in creative ways. They are looking at market increases for existing staff. They are doing recruitment and start bonuses for individuals. But what we see on the more creative side, and that I think is going to make a difference for the systems from a long-term perspective, is things like enhancing nurse residency programs and enhancing and strengthening partnerships with local nursing universities and technical universities. There are hospital systems that are reevaluating, redesigning how they're actually delivering care. Most RNs are not practicing at the top of their license. There is a lot of tasks that they are completing that could be completed by either a lower level licensed personnel like a licensed vocational or practitioner nurse or an unlicensed assistance personnel, which could be a certified nursing assistant or it's a patient care technician. Bulking up on those underlying layers that can allow nurses to operate at the top of their scope means that your demand for RNs decreases and you can actually provide 
provide a high level of quality patient care with less RNs, allowing them to focus on education, assessment, and other items that can only be completed by an RN within that structure. We even see some healthcare systems developing their own technical universities where basically they're training patient care technicians themselves and putting them through an intensive that will allow them to create a pipeline, not only of unlicensed assistive personnel, but those individuals then through tuition reimbursement may want to continue to grow their career into an LVN or an RN position over time. There's lots of opportunities for the market to continue to look at how they are approaching delivery. And I think now it is more than ever necessary for them to do so because from a reimbursement perspective, it's just not sustainable for them to maintain these level of labor cost. And Mel, you and I have presented recently to a number of executive audiences around recruitment and retention strategies. One that I found really interesting that you described to me, which I hadn't heard of before, was the Baylor plan. Could you describe that to the audience? Yeah, as I mentioned, I'm an RN and I actually started my career within the Baylor system, which is now Baylor Scott and White. So we did not call it the Baylor plan. We called it the two-day alternative, a TDA plan. However, a lot of hospitals around the country learned about this plan and have implemented it and they call it the Baylor plan. It is actually an employment opportunity for individuals that desire to work on the weekends. They will work a Saturday and Sunday day shift or a Friday night, Saturday night shift or Saturday night, Sunday night shift. And for working that, they are allowed to basically be treated as full-time employees. They qualify for full-time benefits and they're given a higher differential than just somebody that was working a weekend shift that is a full-time employee because they're working this shift every weekend. So it ends up being comparable to getting paid for 36 hours a week, but you're working those weekends. And by having people that that is their dedicated shift. What it does is it opens up the flexibility in your schedule for the rest of your staff. So you're really concentrating those folks that desire that schedule. And for me, I worked that schedule after having my third child. I was able to work on the weekends and then I was able to be at home with her during the week. My husband became really good at changing diapers and he would care for her on the weekends. It worked out really well for us in our family situation at that time. In order for healthcare systems to be competitive against what is turning into a gig economy, a lot of these nurses did not travel previously and now have experienced the flexibility of a travel contract, a gig contract, if you will, that allow them to work for 13 weeks and then take a month off and go travel or design their life the way that it's going to work for them. It's really important for hospitals now to be competitive in that space, to create more flexible work programs for nurses and other personnel so that they can attract those candidates back into full-time employment. That's a great story and a great example. Most of the hospitals and health systems that both VI and SG2 work with have pretty substantial scale on their own. But some of these challenges are trying to get solved at an even bigger level, like the state level. David, I understand that you guys have undertaken some of that work to try to increase availability of contract nurses in specific geographies. I understand there's been a little bit different flavor to each one, what's been successful, what's been a challenge. Give me some of those learnings when states, big government, big organizations are trying to solve this problem. One of the biggest challenges with the pandemic is in the beginning, the first surge, it was kind of regionalized. So you could effectively move nurses from one part of the country to the other and not have a problem with availability. You were still able to shift around the country. 
as the pandemic began to wear on by summer of last year, it wasn't as easy to do that. You were actually having challenges and within organizations, they started in an effort to address the scarcity, running up the bill rates pretty fast, trying to bid for the highest rates to be able to attract a talent. And a number of states decided that this wasn't a good model, that it became problematic to ensure quality care for their communities. A number of them have worked with us over the last 18 months or so. And there's a couple of things that are in common with all of them. You know, the idea is that we would come in and help place nurses to all of the hospitals or at least a major number of the hospitals in that state. The other thing that it was intended to do is to try to keep a lot of local competition from happening. So the state would be the buyer. They would allocate out where those resources would go. It was based upon need. It was based upon the ability to open additional beds to meet those COVID needs. We had some ground rules, which we actually worked with in all the state projects where we brought in resources from out of that state. It wasn't like you were shuffling them from back and forth between hospitals within the state. And you also minimized the risk that you were pulling somebody out of a full-time job to travel just to accept these assignments. Some of the things that were different, one of the states that we still are working with decided that they wanted to have very tight control over the entire project. They organized the entire state in regions. There's a desirability effect about when you're placing nurses where some may want to go here versus here. We divided the state up in regions in this particular case, and we told them that they were assigned to this region but didn't know which hospital they would be assigned to until they needed to show up for orientation. That reduced the likelihood that somebody would back out because of an attractiveness or favorability of a particular location. Another state decided to have a completely different model where they were paying for the first four weeks of a 12-week assignment. And they required that the hospital that they were placing these nurses at pay for the last eight weeks. There was a skin in the game aspect to that, which I thought was actually a very intriguing element. And it did require that the hospitals demonstrate that they were actually able to open X number of beds for the number of nurses that they received. From that standpoint, it was a very interesting and valuable thing. The challenging part of it was because the state was also defining what the rates were, a lot of the smaller organizations in that state couldn't really afford the rates, so they couldn't participate because they couldn't pay for those last eight weeks of the assignment. Whereas one state had very high degree of placement across the entire state. The other one had about a third or half of the hospitals participating because they could really afford the rates that were coming from that. How do you think some of the learnings from that are going to shape or change future offerings or how you work with, whether it's big systems or states or others to solve this problem at scale? If the state can afford it, the idea that they handle the entire budget is a good one because they also get to define where the nurses come from, where they go, and it allows a more equitable distribution of those resources across the state as opposed to who can really afford to participate or not. The idea of lessons learned from our state-level projects could probably take an hour-long podcast in and of itself, and it may be valuable for us to have a follow-up session with you about the lessons learned on something like that. And I would add on to David's elaboration on those state projects, specifically on the value of that regional approach from a placement perspective. The other benefit of placing a nurse within a region instead of directly at a facility is it allowed us and the state to really 
assess what the situation was within that region and direct the resources to the hospital that had the highest need and highest level of acuity in that moment. If you book a nurse into a specific facility from the get-go, their expectation is that that's going to be where they're going to go and it may be difficult to shift them around. It really allowed us a level of agility that we would not have been able to achieve otherwise. This is a tangent question. What kind of satisfaction or on the other end, burnout was experienced from nurses who did travel assignments like this, where they maybe don't have a ton of flexibility and control, they're being sent into a situation that's in tough shape, they're experiencing a surge, versus some of the really tough numbers we've heard around nurses thinking of leaving, et cetera. I'm going to actually kind of take that from two different angles. Number one, as much as we try to keep the flexibility and agility, we did allow the nurse to specify their top three preferences within that region. When the occasion arose that we could honor that request, we absolutely did. So that allowed them to still maintain an element of control in, in the placement. As far as the experience of the nurses, it varied greatly depending on where they were going. This is such a broad combination of rural critical access hospitals and large urban-based, even academic medical centers that participated in this program. The experience was very dependent on where they landed in that. Travel nurses are often very experienced and able to really dive into circumstances that allow them to adapt and learn quickly. And that's really fun and interesting to a lot of nurses. We saw early in the pandemic that there was a lot of organizations that were doing continuous shift approaches where the nurse had to commit to working 21 days straight. That's 21 days of 12-hour shifts. We saw an immense amount of burnout as a result of that. It's also, to be candid, not the best from a patient safety perspective either. There is a lot of evidence, both for physicians as well as for nurses, that the more hours that you work, the more likely you are to make an error. That was definitely not an approach that we chose to take. And we really encouraged organizations to stick with the 48-hour concept, which is for 12-hour shifts. We did have some go up to 60 in specific circumstances, but we tried to create the flexibility for the nurse to have the option of picking up that fifth shift instead of being required to do so. That flexibility is what we saw to work best across the board. Even now in this current market, we really encourage members to evaluate offering both a 36 and a 48-hour option based on what the clinician's preference is. Then they have the flexibility to decide, I'm only have to work three shifts this week, but I can work additional shifts, or if they're wanting to be guaranteed the four shifts a week to make it really worth it for them to go and travel across the country and care for high-risk patients in this environment, then they have that option as well. One last thing about the state question. If there are states listening, one of the things I would encourage is have a plan before you need the plan. In all of these cases, the contracting process, even though it did not go through an RFP, because of the urgent need, it still took a long time to get through the contracting process. And that cost all of those state-level projects a little bit of valuable time. One of the things that has been great is a number of the states we're working with have had multiple reactivations for us. The subsequent ones, you basically turn on the switch and we're able to start immediately because that contract is already in place. So that's something to think about. Make sure that you have all of those things in place before you need it. Final question. What do you think is going to happen next? 
what's the near-term outlook, the long-term outlook. We've been talking about this looming nursing shortage for years. What are we going to be talking about this time next year when it comes to contract labor? David, you get the first wing. What we've learned is how little we know, actually. We had some things that we thought were going to happen, especially in 21, post the vaccine release, et cetera, and nothing that we anticipated has come to pass quite the way we expected it. We don't know how long it's going to take to bring the rates back down to earth. Certainly, we're very focused on accomplishing that on behalf of our members. One of the things that is really surprising is when you start looking at Bureau of Labor statistics, you actually start realizing that even though the economy has bounced back, there's a significant number of people, men and women, who have not returned to the workforce. You could think of it for a lot of different reasons. Certainly, clinicians deciding this is too difficult or they're really burnt out or they've become very disenchanted with the healthcare system, so they're exiting the industry or at least no longer performing bedside care. It only exacerbates the problem of supply. That's the real question. When is supply going to be approximately equal to demand? Yeah, and the challenge in that is it takes two years to create a nurse. This is not something that happens overnight. In addition to that, we have a shortage of available slots in nursing programs. So the good thing about the pandemic is it actually had a positive influence on the number of applicants to nursing and medical schools. People felt a purpose and were driven to pursue that profession as a result. And when I applied to nursing school, I believe there were 650 applicants and they only took 100. That is not because they don't want to continue to bring nurses through programs. It is because there is not enough instructors to be able to adequately educate and provide clinical experiences for a larger volume than that. And then when the nurses come out of school, we're actually seeing there's just not enough residency programs available and the hospitals just don't have programs in place to be able to bring them in. I always say when I graduated from nursing school, I knew enough to know what I didn't know, but I didn't know enough to actually go and independently care for patients. That residency is really that transition into professional environment. And to do a quick plug for Vizient here, their nurse residency program is the most renowned in the country and allows the platform for nurses and healthcare systems to set up a structure that allows for that transition to practice. Unfortunately, it's just not always something that is scalable for smaller community hospitals or critical access hospitals who are often the ones that are most in need of the staff. We could probably do a lot more and there's so many tangents we could go down and get more details. My prediction is hopefully next year, we're not addressing a new set of issues. We're not experiencing a new unprecedented peak and systems have continued to innovate and have some great creative solutions to share. Thanks so much for sharing your experience today and hope this has been great for our listeners. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments or ideas for episodes and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com additionally i recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts which cover a range of clinical and operational areas those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts mm-hmm.